Long live the Queen. I have in sincerity pledged myself to your service. Perhaps you could just give us an idea of what the last year has been like. Um... Sir, have you, broke, have you spoken to your brother since the interview? <laughs> no, I haven't spoken to him yet, but I will do. Well, there were three of us in this marriage. So it was a bit crowded. He's one of the greatest men I've ever met in my life. There is no good time to talk about um, Mr Epstein. Welcome to On Royal Watch, a special series hosted by the Know How podcast. We're doing a deep dive into the British royal family and their symbiotic but complicated relationship with the media. We talk to experts and journalists as we unpack the Windsor's biggest scandals and we ask the questions. What is the future between the press and the royals? How is that changing? And why do we care so much about a hereditary family in the 21st century? In this episode, we focus on Prince Andrew, who has been accused of child sexual abuse by Virginia Roberts Jouffre. A trigger warning. In this episode, we are discussing sexual abuse and detailing the allegations against Prince Andrew. Here is Jufre in a BBC Panorama interview describing how she met Prince Andrew in 2001 when she was 17 years old. He asked me to dance. He is the most hideous dancer I've ever seen in my life. I mean, it was horrible. And this guy was sweating all over me. Like, his sweat was, like, it was raining basically everywhere. And I was just like, whoa grossed out from it, um, but I knew I had to keep him happy because that's what Jeffrey and Gillen would ex- expect from me. Jufre has been a public figure in the Jeffrey Epstein case. When she was a teenager, she worked at Mar-a-Lago, which may sound familiar because it's Donald Trump's private club. Jufre, who was then Virginia Roberts, was reading a book about massage therapy in the Mar-a-Lago spa changing room when a woman approached her to ask her if she wanted to be a massage therapist. That woman was none other than Ghislaine Maxwell, a British socialite and longtime partner of Jeffrey Epstein. She is the socialite who was a big name in American and British high society for decades, hosting glamorous dinner parties and hanging out with powerful people. But did Ghislaine Maxwell use her connections for something unimaginable? She stands accused of grooming underage girls for her ex-boyfriend and confidant, Jeffrey Epstein. Yet while her name is now infamous... Ghislaine Maxwell. Ghislaine Maxwell. Ghislaine Maxwell. She's still somewhat of a riddle wrapped in a mystery who managed to evade the FBI for nearly a year. Channel 4 reporting on how Ghislaine Maxwell is currently on trial in New York for sex trafficking and sex trafficking of a minor. And to remind listeners, Jeffrey Epstein was an American financier very well connected to a lot of big names. In 2008, he was convicted in Florida State Court for procuring a child for child prostitution. He was able to work out a deal where he served only 13 months in custody, and most of that he spent on work release. Fast forward to July 6, 2019, Epstein was arrested again for sex trafficking of minors in Florida and in New York, but he mysteriously died in jail a month later. Julie K. Brown of the Miami Herald has done amazing reporting on this case. She says that redacted police records mention over 100 Jane Doe's who allege being sexually abused by Epstein. Jufre has publicly detailed her experiences with Jeffrey Epstein and Ghislaine Maxwell several times, including the Netflix documentary Jeffrey Epstein, Filthy Rich. But just to summarize, Jufre has testified that she was groomed and abused by Maxwell and Epstein and forced into sex trafficking from 2000 to 2002. 
In 2002, she was sent to Thailand by Maxwell and Epstein to attend a massage school. And there she met her future husband, Robert Dufre, and she decided to cut ties with Maxwell and Epstein. She lived a quiet life in Australia for a few years, but then was co- contacted by the authorities in 2007. In 2009, Dufre took part in a lawsuit against Epstein that was settled out of court. She first spoke to the press in a 2011 Vanity Fair article. Then in January 2015, Dufre filed a civil case in Florida stating that Epstein had trafficked her to Prince Andrew. Here's Dufre again describing the first alleged incident with Prince Andrew. There was a bath and it started there and then it led into the bedroom and it didn't last very long, the whole entire procedure. It was disgusting. Um, He wasn't mean or anything, but he got up and he said thanks and walked out and I sat there in bed just horrified and ashamed and felt dirty and I had to get up and go have a shower and you know the next day Ghislaine tells me I did a really good job. Dufre alleges that she had two more encounters with Prince Andrew, once at Epstein's home in New York and the last on Epstein's private Caribbean island. When this story first broke in 2015 it wasn't that big of a story at the time until Epstein was arrested in 2019. This story and Prince Andrew's involvement became international news. U.S. authorities have said that Prince Andrew has not cooperated with them in the cases of Epstein and Maxwell, and the London Met has said no one is above the law when referring to this case, but so far hasn't brought any charges against Prince Andrew. On August 9, 2021, Jufre filed a civil lawsuit in New York federal court against Prince Andrew for sexual assault. This case is unfolding now, which we'll talk more about. This is obviously a very big story that connects Jeffrey Epstein, Ghislaine Maxwell, and so it's important, though, to note that our focus here is primarily on Prince Andrew and how this story has played out in the press. We've come to Buckingham Palace in highly unusual circumstances. Normally, we'd be discussing your work, your duty. We'll come on to that. But today, you've chosen to speak out for the first time. Why have you decided to talk now? Because uh, there is no good time to talk about um, Mr Epstein and um, all things associated. That's a clip from the infamous Prince Andrew BBC Newsnight interview that we're going to get into. But first, we thought it would be useful to talk a little bit about the context of sexual abuse and how recently there have been some changes under what we call the Me Too movement. We talked to Dr. Lee Gilmore, who is currently a visiting professor at The Ohio State University. She has researched and written extensively about survivors speaking out and the barriers of that. And she has also researched the Me Too movement. So she was great to talk about the context of the Prince Andrew case. To give a bit of a background, the term Me Too started with survivor and activist Tarana Burke back in 2006 when she wanted to build a support system for black women survivors. This work has grown, as their website states, our work continues to focus on assisting a growing spectrum of survivors, young people, queer, trans, the disabled, black women and girls, and all communities of color. After the Harvey Weinstein case broke in October of 2017, actor Alyssa Milano went on Twitter and wrote, If you've been sexually harassed or assaulted, write Me Too as a reply to this tweet. 
that went viral. And in the subsequent days after Weinstein, many other cases broke. Vox has created a list of the accused from 2017 to February 2020, and that list reached 262 names. So it's made a big impact, but there are still a lot of struggles, as Dr. Gilmore explains. For millennia, um, we've doubted what women say about their lives, but especially when they talk about sexual violence. And suddenly, in October 2017, we decided for a time to believe women. And how that happened and why it happened, uh, I think is the story sort of behind the leading headlines. And to understand that, I think what you have to do is recognize the tremendous scale of knowledge that was created by social media, but also understand that that wasn't enough because there have always been awareness campaigns and they tend to rise up and, and gather a lot of attention, often around specific cases, and then they fade. And the reason they fade is, um, you know, is, is really the story. And the reason they fade is, is because of, of sort of patriarchy, right? So we use a kind of big general word to refer to long-standing structures and systems. So any individual um, often encounters something like these vast systems and structures in crisis when they're a survivor of, of you know, sexual harassment at work or, or sexual assault or, or rape. Um, and they're really outmatched in terms of their power and knowledge. Um, and the systems are set up to perpetuate the doubting of women. It took a long time just to get to the point where we started taking these things more seriously. And I think the reason why we call it the Me Too movement is because it indicates a time of like, okay, now we're going to suddenly start taking this more seriously in the press. And I think journalists were more, more or less using that as a way of justifying um, telling more of these stories. I think you're right. If we think back to 2017, and I mean, there was a moment where this these issues were able to be debated, and the way that journalists uh, they used um, Me Too, I would say, you know, in a positive way. So that they looked at different industries. So we we saw like sort of investigations in not just the the film industry, uh, industry, but say here in the UK, there was what we called the Pestminster scandal, which was like sort of sexual harassment um, in the Houses of Parliament. Since then, we've had the things like Aid to, which is looking at um, harassment in um, the humanitarian world. But I guess what's the depressing thing about listening to what Dr. Gilmore had to say is these were big stories. These were real debates that were happening. And then they've just gone away again. There was a moment that the press could latch on to. And then it fades, as she says. Definitely. I definitely agree with that. And if you think about Vox creating that list, 262 people, that's a lot of headlines. That's a lot of stories. And that was just for the U.S. That's not talking about internationally. Unfortunately, they make for good headlines, but not always a long-term story that we need. I mean, journalists, I think, would say in response to this, these are sort of difficult issues to report on. It's difficult often, understandably, for for women um, to feel uh, secure in speaking out. 
and there are legal problems often around that. But these stories have been told, as we've seen um, at the height of the Me Too movement. So I think we have to question ourselves as journalists um, to look beyond the problems and say we can report these kind of stories. Definitely. And I think a motivation of this this particular episode and to talk about Prince Andrew is that, yes, this has been covered and we're going to get into it, but why not more and why not more intensely? I guess that's the question I have for this episode. <laughs> I think I think that's a very good question to have. <laughs> and when you think about, you know, women telling their stories, I mean, Jufre has told her story and she started talking about Prince Andrew for a while now. So if you go back, we found a clip and this was before the Me Too movement back in 2015. Uh, There was an interview by American talk show host Meredith Vieira with Sarah Ferguson, formerly married to Prince Andrew. And here's what she had to say about the allegations at that time in 2015. Knowing him as I know him, and he's one of the greatest men I've ever met in my life, and my best friend, and great father to my children, I just thought, I don't understand in this day and age how people can make salacious lies up, and how the media actually then write about it, and then follow on with it, because I just don't understand. This is defamation of character of a person that is the opposite to how he's being portrayed. So uh, Buckingham Palace put out a denial. And on his behalf. On his behalf, and that's how it works within the royal family. And, and they stand by that denial. There is no more, there's nothing more to be said. And I think it is just, uh, it is just shockingly accusatory lies, which I won't stand by and let anybody believe or, or, or I just have to shut it down right now. She won't let anybody believe. I think it's really interesting because I hadn't heard that clip before and that this is in 2015. She's so definite here and she talks um, about sort of Buckingham Palace issuing denials on behalf of Andrew here. Well, actually, this is her. She's acting as a sort of de facto press spokesperson. And um, the kind of language she's using here is like sort of defamatory, lies, Obviously, we're talking about allegations um, here, but I kind of find it interesting because this goes far beyond like sort of what you would usually expect of a kind of of a, a sort of a royal style statement to address the allegations in, in such a um, direct way. Yeah. And also is a reminder of how we used to talk about survivors not that long ago. I mean, she said salacious lies and talking about survivors that way. I think now, even though people still deny the accusations put forward against them, that part of calling someone who comes forward liars and other derogatory things, that part has shifted. I don't Mm. think she would say something like that to that extent. I mean, she has still been very vocal, if we think about it. And there's even rumors swirling around about her remarrying Prince Andrew. I mean, what is that all about? Oh, <laughs> so I mean, I think what's really interesting is this uh, story. This story about them remarrying has kind of um, resurfaced. I mean, almost as longer than they they were actually ever married. And I suppose what I find interesting about this um, surfacing of the rumor at the the moment is it comes at a very opportune time 
for Prince Andrew, who like sort of who has seen his reputation um, be damaged. Thinking about Jufre from her perspective in 2015, imagine being her and then immediately coming against public ridicule. Beyond that, it becomes like climbing Mount Everest to seek any kind of due process, uh, let alone justice. And Dr. Gilmore explains more about that. For many survivors, I think what's most daunting is that there aren't processes, you know, so it's not, it's that they're not fair and not transparent when they're there or that they're not there, right? And so your desire to just discharge this crime, this violation, this infraction, right, to sort of make people aware of what's occurred you know, confronts this, um, this wall, this wall goes up. Um, and Sarah Ahmed has a, has, has written about this and has a new book about this coming out called complaint. That's that really kind of isolates a lot of the features of coming up against institutional processes that seem to be designed for your problem, but in fact are designed to silence you. And so I think for, for survivors, what's most frustrating is that this desire, this kind of moral and just desire to, to tell the truth about a harm is um, uh, there's nowhere, there's no place for it to go that's fair and, and, and that will lead to justice. Right. So when you think about that context and then imagine you're basically an unknown person, very young still, not connected and you decide to come forward and you're implicating a prince and not only just a prince, but a prince of the British royal family. I mean, listening to that, it's it's kind of interesting. What I was thinking about then um, when Dr. Gilmore was speaking was, you know, if we, if we think back to the 1930s, the British press, you know, would not even report the fact that um, Edward VIII um, was getting was thinking of marrying a divorced woman, and you know the kind of the way that the media um, sometimes reports on the the royals, there can be a, like sort of a huge amount of deference. So I was just thinking about this idea that we're even reporting part of a story, or like sort of it has got some publicity um, about um, allegations against sort of a British prince. It, we've come a, a fair way, but. As you point out, it's still incredibly difficult because the other thing is, um, I was thinking if we look at uh, more recent history, if we look at how uh, people like the Diana Princess of Wales felt that she was silenced by uh, the royal family, you know, she claimed that you know members of the royal household attempted to thwart her role after her separation from the Prince of Wales. She used to refer to them as the men in grey suits, the, so the enemy, and. If you've got the former wife of the heir to the throne who sees a problem in talking about what she believes her experience to have been, where does that leave someone who is, as you say, an unconnected teenager in uh, challenging these power structures? Definitely. And I think you make a good point that, yeah, at least we're hearing the story and at least we're hearing from the perspective of Jufre. If we think about 2015, I don't see any clips from Jufre in 2015. When that story broke, it was through court records, through the lawsuit, and then immediately it goes to defense of Prince Andrew via Sarah Ferguson here. 
now when the story broke again in 2019 with Jeffrey Epstein and the whole chaos of that, we're actually hearing from the perspective of the people who are accusing. And just to point out again, right now they are allegations because there hasn't been a conviction. But we'll still refer to them as survivors because uh, they are telling stories of surviving sexual assault. But just to reiterate that these are allegations at this point. But anyway, so at least we're hearing from the point of view of people coming forward, and we are actually hearing a little bit of context um, from activists like Tarana Burke and others. I don't, in my opinion, I don't think we have it enough. Um, I'm also curious why there hasn't been more of a concerted effort to try to get more from Prince Andrew and from the royal family or do you think they're just being blocked right now? Well, I suppose um, we'll get on to the um, Newsnight interview in a bit. But um, the the royal family, sort of the Queen, certainly, um, the policy is always, um, you know, uh, has been, you know, sort of never apologise, never explain. For them, why talk about it more? Because then it's in the public domain. People are um, discussing it. If you If you don't talk about it, um, if you sort of, it's much more difficult then uh, for the media to keep the story going. So I'm not surprised that we haven't heard m- more about it from the from the royal family themselves. And, and as I say, as we'll talk about in a bit, when um, Prince Andrew did decide to speak out, then we saw, you know, what ramifications that had. We're talking a lot about power differentiation and even being in a position where you're like, I don't want to talk about it and being able to stick to that. I think it also shows the power that they have. And she talks about how there's such um, a difference of what a person coming forward can do versus a powerful person who's accused. You know, survivors have been trying to tell their stories for a long time. And, you know, I think that this myth that women don't talk about it, like, you know, in the Anita Hill testimony, one of the senators said very disingenuously, why come forward now? Where's your gumption? And, (laughs) you know, I think we're less likely to, to hear that and think, oh, that makes a lot of sense. I think we know more. Now we know that women often come forward and talk from you know the moment something bad happens to them. They have contemporaneous accounts of of what happened. So what what we what we see then in that moment is like how hard it is to break a story. We see the importance of power, how much the accused has. In this case, Prince Andrew. I assume he has a lot of leverage over how stories about him are covered, um, and then the lack of the relative lack of power of survivors, right? And so sexual violence compounds vulnerability upon vulnerability. Um, uh, queer and trans survivors of color have a hard time in with credibility in, in court. Um, and and the, 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 the kind of disproportionate um, access to power um, is on, on display in those cases at every turn. So getting more into the details of the case, we also talked to journalist Jen Tarran. She co-hosts a podcast called The Prince and the Pervert with her fellow journalist Lisa Tate. They've spent the last two years closely following all things related to Jeffrey Epstein, including Prince Andrew. Lisa and I met back in early 97. We both worked as print journos for years. I stayed at the Herald. She moved on and did PR and communication damage control, I suppose. 
worked for politicians and then I was a federal delegate of the National Union for Journalists in Australia and New Zealand. We've both ended up with the decimation of our industry. We're both not working and I've got kids. I'm very fortunate that I don't have to work. Same with Lisa. But we've always been news hounds. We love it. And we've loved the royal family, the scandal. We don't love them per se, but rich people doing bad things seems to be our bent, what we like. And we'd been chatting about Prince Andrew, Virginia Roberts, Dufre, all of that type of thing for years, I suppose. And on all, two years ago, August 28th, I went on one of Lisa's little podcast she was doing called Snarkarellas where she just talked about different topics of the day and there was something about Prince Andrew so I went on and we were chatting about the whole Epstein link ups the whole problems that he had when Virginia went public with her claims and then the next thing you know we hear that Epstein was finally arrested and she went to the states came back and essentially on the tarmac rang me and said we're doing a proper podcast we're going to follow this Epstein case he'd already died by this stage and she's like we've got to do it so that's what we did and it's sometimes it's only 20 hours a week sometimes it's 40 I now do all the production in-house because of the different libel laws the defamation laws in Australia aren't as tough as the UK and of course in America the really doesn't seem to be any but I have to make sure that nothing we put out will get us sued that everything is triple checked because we'll talk and we'll occasionally mix up names or dates and we have to go through and make sure everything is correct so sometimes we're easily spending 40 60 hours she says that despite the strength of Dufre to come forward the British press have been distracted as this case unfolded well the story obviously wouldn't have broken unless Virginia came forward. And that took a lot of guts. She was only 17 when that happened and she was groomed. A lot of people say, oh, she was paid for it, whatever. No, she was groomed to be in that position and to be trafficked. And a lot of people point out, oh, well, she was 17. And I understand the age of consent is 17 in the UK. It doesn't matter when you deal with trafficking. She was moved from one place to another for the purposes of sexual assault now she didn't come forward with her story about or sorry her allegations about Andrew until she had children of her own and then she decided she had the strength to do it and she decided to do it as for the UK press not picking it up they seem to love running pieces about Harry and Meghan and trashing them which is what we refer to as the dead cat and that's an Australian term which means everyone's looking at a fight and then somebody else walks into a room, puts a dead cat at the, on a table. No one's talking about the fight anymore. They're just looking at the dead cat. Harry and Megan have been used as a massive distraction to hide Andrew's story. And we're hearing tales that the Queen has actually said, no photographs around here, no publication of stories. We don't understand. Well, we have a better understanding than the Americans about how powerful the royals are. But we're still trying to work out, do they really have the power the Queen has or 
do the publishing companies, the owners, just think it's not worth it? I think there's several things going on here. I think this is a legal case and, you know, particularly under sort of um, the legal um, restrictions that the British media find themselves um, under, it is more difficult to report stories like this. What I think is more interesting, though, is not to say that that just means that um, that's, that's the only reason. I think it, it's interesting why is the British media so interested in focusing on you know, what they would call the woke agenda of, um, of Harry and Meghan. Why is it so easy to kind of to laugh, to sort of criticise them um, about what they're doing um, when there is not the same attention on um, the allegations against um, Prince Prince Andrew. So I think it's not so much that there's a dead cat, the kind of the whole Linton Crosby kind of, you know, political campaign. But um, why is it that the media um, find it easier and more convenient to uh, criticise the um, Harry and Meghan in the way they have and really, you know, sort of go for them in many ways? And we're going to get more into Harry and Meghan in our next episode. I would say, though, that no matter what your feelings are about Harry and Meghan or about Prince Andrew, for that matter, if the same intensity was surrounding Prince Andrew and these allegations as it is with Harry and Meghan, I think more of the public would be aware of this story and maybe be challenging the royal family to hold him a little bit more accountable, I would say. Mm -hmm. I wonder, I wonder whether, well, I wonder if that's sort of beginning to change now, but... That's something we could maybe talk about. Yeah, let's see. I mean, let's go to the major interview. So since this story broke, uh, the only sit-down interview that Prince Andrew has done concerning this story has been with BBC Newsnight, and it was in November of 2019. So it's been quite some time now, but we thought it was such a impactful interview. I think that's one <laughs> adjective to use. I don't know how to describe it tastefully. It was such an interesting interview, let's say, that it's worth unpacking and uh, thinking about from a media or a journalism perspective. We're just going to show some highlights. Now, again, these are these have been edited down for brevity, uh, but I think they're worthy of listening to just to get an idea of what the interview was like. So let's listen to a little bit about what Maitlis was uh, asking concerning Jufre and the allegations there. One of Epstein's accusers, Virginia Roberts, yeah. has made allegations against you. She says she met you in 2001. She says she dined with you, danced with you at Tramp Nightclub in London. She went on to have sex with you in a house in Belgravia belonging to Gerlen Maxwell, your friend. Your response? I have no recollection of ever meeting this lady. Uh, I was at home. Uh, I was with the children. I'd taken Beatrice to uh, a Pizza Express in Woking for a party at, a, I suppose, sort of four or five in the afternoon. Um, and then, because the Duchess was away, we have a simple rule in the, in the, in the family that, 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 that when one's away, the other one's there. I was on terminal leave at the time, um, from the, the Royal Navy, so therefore I was at home. Why would you remember that so specifically? Why would you remember a, a Pizza Express birthday and being at home? Because going to Pizza Express in Woking is an unusual thing for me to do. 
a very unusual thing for me to do. I've never been, I've only been through Woking a couple of times, um, and I remember it weirdly distinctly. As soon as somebody reminded me of it, I went, oh, yes, I remember that. She described dancing with you no. and you profusely sweating <laughs> and that she went on to have bath, there's a, there's possibly... A, there's a slight problem with, 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 with the sweating um, because uh, I, I have a peculiar medical condition, which is that I don't sweat, um, or I didn't sweat at the time, and that was... Oh, actually, yes. I didn't sweat at the time because I... Um, had suffered what I would describe as an overdose of adrenaline in the Falklands War when I was shot at, uh, and I simply it, it was it was it was almost impossible for me to, to to sweat, and it's only because I have done a number of things in the recent past that I'm starting to be able to do that again. So I'm afraid to say that that that, that there's a medical condition that says that I didn't do it. So therefore, do you know you didn't meet her? Or do you just not remember no, meeting her? No, I have. I, I, I don't know if I've met her. Well, he does have crisis communication people in his team. He has had them for a while. Maybe they told him to do that, or maybe his ego is such that he thought he could get away with it. And if he, the royal he, said, I wasn't there, I couldn't have done this, I don't sweat, that people would just accept it. It's this whole maybe the way he was brought up as that special child, that third child. He believes he can get away with it if he says it is so. So I don't know about you, Lindsay, but I remember watching this. Um, I was watching it downstairs and I was shouting so much at the TV that my husband actually came down to see what I was watching because it was absolutely sort of gobsmacking TV to watch. Um, the you know particularly that bit that we've just been uh, listening to that Jen was referring to about the sort of Pizza Express woking, the the lack of sweating, you know, that set off a whole stream of internet mean memes um, on the subject. Um, and I mean. I think I really like sort of uh, there was a former P Palace Press spokesperson um, called Dickie Arbiter who described the interview as not so much as a, a car crash as an articulated lorry crash. Like sort of someone else called it nuclear explosion um, level bad. And it, it's kind of even listening back to it sort of nearly two years on is is weird. Um, and I mean, my understanding, you know, sort of why did he do this? Who advised him to do it was actually he had had a fairly um, new communications um, chief at the time, someone who'd worked in the political arena. He'd worked for um, the MP Amber Rudd and who'd actually suggested strongly against Andrew doing this. And when... Um, Prince Andrew went ahead and did it. You know, sort of, he had to resign afterwards. So, I mean, it, it's just breathtaking about what he thought he was doing in making these kind of remarks. I think. I think this can stand out as one of those interviews where it was explosive. Yet he was very calm when he was saying it. He was very rehearsed. It's explosive in the fact that you're sitting there, as you said, as the audience thinking to yourself, what is happening? What <laughs> I know. is happening? <laughs> I mean, like, so absolutely, so it deserved all the awards it won because, you know, compelling television. In the same way as Diana Princess of Wales's interview was compelling television, you know, so two decades earlier, you could not believe 
what you were hearing, that a, a senior member of the royal family was saying the things that he was saying? I mean, being put into that position, obviously, it's a very difficult one. And so you could approach it in many different ways. Number one, avoid the interview, which yeah. probably would have been the best choice. Um, number two, just deny, 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 refuse to answer any questions or start talking about other things, uh, which has happened in these types of interviews. Or just keep your answers very short and very brief or do what he did, which is over-rehearsed, over-detailed, and just bizarre. And for me, the particular low point that I remember that stood out to me was, why did he mention his children? That, for me, was a low point. For me, it was the banality of some of the explanations um, that he gave that didn't seem to add up. And as I say, I think sort of really backfired on him from a sort of a public relations point of view. I don't know if you remember that sort of basically TripAdvisor was then filled with like sort of spoof um, accounts of people claiming to have not seen him there or to have seen him there and being struck by the fact that he wasn't sweating at the time. And so this kind of ridicule that um, kind of um, came into the whole sort of equation was, you know, clearly completely the opposite um, from what he believed he was going to achieve by explaining his whereabouts, um, you know, at a certain time. I think also maybe if he had been advised or was just thinking about it from himself, like, okay, infuse the fact that you are a family man, you're a dad, you have a family. Oh, infuse the fact that you're a war hero, <laughs> you were fighting in the in Falklands War. And so it's like distract people with this, uh, and so they think about you positively and all the contributions you've made to society. But unfortunately, in this case, and that is a political move that a lot of people have done successfully. Unfortunately, in this case, I mean, it was so absurd that I think the average audience member just couldn't go there with him. I don't think so. And if it was if it was meant in that kind of um, strategic way, as um, as you, you're pointing out, the differentiation between sort of a prince in a pizza express um, and that you would remember that because you don't usually go to pizza express um, in Woking, um, then that completely um, failed to like sort of to make the point that he was trying to do. If anything, it just it showed the like sort of the incongruity of it. Um, so the other part of the interview actually um, asked Prince Andrew about his relationship with Epstein and Maxwell. Um, now, Prince Andrew first met Epstein through Maxwell back in 1999. And so here are some highlights um, from that part of the interview. Um, and it would be, to some extent, a stretch to say that, that um, uh, as it were, we were close friends. I mean, we were friends because of other people. He would say, well, why don't you come and use my houses? So I said, that's very kind. Thank you very much indeed. Just for the record, you've been on his private plane. Yes. You've been to stay on his private island? Yes. You've stayed at his home in Palm Beach? Yes. You visited Gellin Maxwell's house in Belgravia in London? Yes. In 2006, in May, an arrest warrant was issued for Epstein for sexual assault of a minor. Yes. In July, he was invited to Windsor Castle to your daughter, Princess Beatrice's 18th birthday. Why would you do that? 
because I was asking Ghislaine. But even so, at the time, I don't think I... Um, certainly, I wasn't aware when the invitation was issued what was going on in the United States. In 2008, he was convicted of yep. soliciting and procuring a minor for prostitution. He was jailed. This yes. was your friend. How yes. did you feel about it? Well, I ceased contact with him after uh, I was aware that he was um, under investigation. And that was later on in, in 2006. And I wasn't in touch with him again until 2010. So um, I just, uh, just... He was released in July. Within months, by December of 2010, you went to stay with him at his New York mansion... Why? Why were you staying with a convicted sex offender? Right. Now, I went there with the sole purpose of saying to him that because he had been convicted, it was inappropriate for us to be seen together. I felt that doing it over the telephone was the chicken's way of doing it. He had to say goodbye, our friendship is over, by staying with him. So he stayed in that mansion for a couple of days to say goodbye. I'm never going to see you again because your lifestyle is abhorrent. Yet he would normally stay around the corner in a hotel. And it probably caused more problems for his security detail, him staying at Epstein's place than staying in an, a hotel. It was ridiculous. Let's think about this from a journalist's perspective and being put into Emily Maitlis's position. Describe, Glenda, what you think it would be like from a journalist's point of view to interview a member of the royal family about a difficult subject, and while he's cooperating, he's just giving these very bizarre answers. Oh, I think it must have been the most surreal situation um, possible. There was a long process that Newsnight uh, went through to get this interview, and they were very clear um, that sort of no question is going to be sort of off the table. And actually, Emily Maitlis has said in sort of subsequent um, pieces and interviews that actually, in one way, she respected Prince Andrew for being prepared to approach head on everything that she asked. You know, there were fewer red lines, you know, sort of riders um, put down before the interview that she would, you know, in comparison to what she would have usually got if she was sitting down with a politician, you know, she would usually do with Newsnight. And for like sort of, you know, arrogance, naivety or whatever, you know, Prince Andrew was willing to answer those questions, you know, in ex expansive um, like sort of terms. I think what's really interesting is um, you sort of, there, you watch the interview and you see her pushing him on various things, you know, as these answers become more and more strange um, and there's, there's just one bit at the end I don't know if you remember it Lindsay where like sort of uh, I think she's asked him something like does you know does she does he regret his uh, friendship with Epstein and um, Prince Andrew says I, I regret that he's um, obviously conducted himself in a manner unbecoming and she says to him unbecoming he was a sex offender and at that moment, I think you see what it must have been like to be a journalist listening and conducting an interview and um, carrying it on. 
But, you know, even then, by that stage in the interview, there's a moment where she has to say, am I really hearing what I'm hearing? Um, and I think that so that moment for me was actually a really powerful one where she was she had been you know very controlled, very calm, you know, about the way that she conducted the interview. But she just could not let that remark pass. She conducted herself so well to really ask those detailed questions. And I think some people might criticize, especially maybe a North American audience might think that she was not reacting enough, that she wasn't being human-like enough. But for me personally, I appreciated that because it showed his responses to be even more ridiculous, or it showed the responses to be what they were without any interference, I, I let's think, say. I think the, the word that I would use is kind of forensic here. She focused on the allegations and went went through them sort of one by one, giving him a chance to answer them. Um, and letting him sort of speak for himself, I think it, you know a sort of uh, a more emotional, sort of accusatory interview would not have been appropriate. But also, we would have learnt far less from that. I mean, she wrote in a piece, sort of. Um, that she did after the interview to say, you know, how difficult it was. You know, there is no easy way to ask a senior member of the royal family about their links to a prolific paedophile. You know, there was a, there's no sort of kind of uh, playbook here about how you do this kind of interview. And I think the approach that both she and Esme Wren, the editor of Newsnight, who is sort of very much in, involved um, with this, was a good journalistic approach. Let him say, let him explain to us. And as I say, it was his answers that like sort of that garnered the publicity, almost um, his explanation or as many people felt his lack of credible explanations for the um, allegations that Maitlis put to him. So one other part to mention very quickly is the Queen and Mm -hmm. the Queen's reaction, of course. Prince Andrew did step back from his royal duties, but recently the Queen did allow Prince Andrew to keep his honorary title. Well, we've always been told that Andrew is her favourite child. And remember, she had Charles and Anne so close and they were always pushed into the public view. They grew up under the scrutiny of cameras. Then there was a bit of a break. And from what I understand, there weren't as many photos of Andrew as a little one, a toddler. There wasn't the photo ops that the other two were forced to do. So he had a slightly different upbringing and maybe they indulged him more because they had made that choice to keep him out of the limelight. So he didn't learn... The idea of not respect, but how to behave in polite society when people are watching you, when there is a reason why they're watching you. He just seems to miss part of his brain that most other people seem to have. But she's only going to live for maybe another 10 years. What's going to happen then? He won't have the protection of Charles. Yeah, that's interesting. I, mean, I think there's been a lot of press coverage about sort of um, the Prince of Wales um, being very clear that he does not want to see his younger brother um, back in public life, that he he sees, you know, sort of no way back. Um, thinking about the difference between the older um, children of the Queen and the younger two, Andrew and Edward, I, th- I think we have to remember that there is, I mean, Charles was born in 1948, Andrew was born in 1960. I mean, one was born, you know, in the you know early days after the Second World War, one was 
born at the beginning of the 60s. So I think there was a different time, different expectations um, of what childhood was like. And but also what the role was. I mean, Ch Charles was the Prince of Wales. Um, Andrew was the spare heir. And so he didn't have the same role. He didn't have the same responsibilities. And so this idea of sort of Randy Andy, Air Mars Andy, Playboy Prince was allowed to happen um, because he did not have the same constitutional importance that um, Charles did. And that is before you get on to his personality. So one thing that I wonder about the Queen is that because he's a spare heir, as you say, and he's not the next in line, why not just be harsher? Why not just show that you take this kind of allegation seriously? I guess it puts you in a very difficult position if you're the queen. Well, I think there's two things here. First, um, you could say that sort of as a mother, like sort of, you know, no mother would want to believe that um, a son and particularly a favourite son, if we believe those reports, is guilty of um, you know a serious um, crime like this, so um, you know there there is that. But I think it's also mainly about sort of media coverage. Again, there is a deference towards the Queen. I mean, there because of her long reign, and particularly accentuated now because of her like sort of her great age and you know her recent widowhood this year. We don't hear the Queen sort of criticizing Andrew, and we don't hear criticism of the Queen for not criticizing. Andrew, because the media still see the Queen as the figurehead and is inviolate. So that's why you see the reports about Charles not wanting Andrew back in public life. But you don't see the Queen saying anything. And we're definitely going to get into this more in the future episodes. I do think, though, is she making a critical era, error here? Well, what is interesting, though, is that I think we have seen increasing critical coverage of um, of Andrew, I think we've seen over the recent stories of um, the serving of the papers. I mean, that was broken by the Daily Mail, which you know, sort of a right wing mid market paper, which um, is um, famous for its um, obsession with the royal family and you know its loyalty to um, the Queen. And so, if there's now prepared to break those kind of stories. I think this shows that the sort of the tide is turning on, um, you know, sort of whether Andrew will be let off the hook um, about like sort of stories not being covered about these kind of allegations. You know, that that is not to say that we're going to have the story delved into in as, as much depth, maybe. But I, I think it's really interesting that kind of change in tone we're seeing. Definitely. And this is an ongoing case and an ongoing story. So we're going to have to stay tuned. So to end this episode, I'd like to just have a final thought from Dr. Lee Gilmore. Thank you to Dr. Gilmore and Jen Taran for contributing to the podcast. I think what a lot of these cases um, raise for, for all of us to deal with is this question of what do survivors want? And um, over and over and over again, what they say they want um, uh, is sort of twofold. They want to be able to tell their story and, and in their own words. And they want to be, they want to prevent further harm, right? Caused by, by the person who abused them. So what they want is actually, um, it's not a very big ask. 
That was episode one of On Royal Watch, hosted by the Know How podcast. Next time, we delve into the media frenzy surrounding Harry and Meghan. You've been listening to The Know How, the podcast that dissects pressing issues with academics and experts. It was presented by Lindsay Blumel and Glenda Cooper and produced by Atina Dimitrova. For more information on this and our other episodes, please go to our website, www.thenowhowpodcast.com or follow us on Twitter at Know How Podcast or on Facebook at The Know How Podcast.